Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. We're going to look at Psalm 88 and 89. Let me begin simply by reading Psalm 88 to you. Psalm 88. It says, A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, Mahalath, Lenath, the masculine of Heman, the Esrathite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. Verse 4, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are the wonders known in the darkness? of your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning, my prayers come before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadfulness assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 88, at the close of book three of the Psalms, is a very, very dark psalm. But it is a very reassuring psalm. For how many times do believers occupy a place in this sanctuary and say those same words? God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from me? Can your steadfast love be declared from the grave or your faithfulness from hell? Well, if we really were transparent, far too often we come with these kinds of questions. And so God in his sovereignty, in the moving of his spirit, has beautifully penned these words of deep darkness When Israel, this recounts book three, as book three ends, um, the exile of 
God's faithless people. But as this book closes within, there's five books within the psalm, and as book three closes, it closes on this very dark note. And you can see that in Psalm 88. But it doesn't close without a glimmer of hope. For often, Psalm 88 and 89 are sung and read together. And so that's why we will cover them together. And while there's much to to say about Psalm 88 and the wisdom of Psalm 88 and to answer some of the questions that that Hemans, who's the author, heart and lips ask. It is Ethan who writes Psalm 89. And we will focus on Psalm 89 because it gathers up this darkness. And while it, it doesn't bring it all to this beautiful picture of rainbows and butterflies and daisies, there is this beautiful glimmer of hope in the promise and covenant of God. And I believe by God's sovereignty, there are those here this morning that need to hear once again that God is active in saving the world. Why are we hopeless? And why are we idol worshipers? It's because we put our trust in the things that cannot hold our hope. In powers and in people and in pleasures that cannot fulfill like God can. And that's what Psalm 89 is about. Psalm 89 is about being down at the bottom of the pit and looking up and seeing light and having hope. And so in um, in five parts, we're going to see this psalm progress. In, first, in verses 1 through 4, we see God's promise of steadfast love to David. And then we see as, as, as Ethan develops, we see that God's sovereign, redeeming power is at work. That God has made a covenant with David for worldwide dominion. And that's so important. There will not be any small space in the world that is not affected by the redeeming power of Jesus. And yet there is, at the end, this lament for God's people in their disobedience. The reason that they're at the bottom of the pit is their faithlessness. And that's what we see, is we see the human condition as we get to um, the end of book three. We see that our hearts wander, our Our hearts are led astray. They are deceived and we are self-deceived. And so what do we need? We need confession and forgiveness and grace and hope in Jesus. And then we see at the end that there is this question. It's a question of longing. Lord, where is your steadfast love? It's, it's, I I love this, you know, um, I do happen to like those movies that end without resolution. You know, that like, because I trust my imagination. Some people are just like, I can't take that. I want to know what happens, right? I love it because 
You know, it's, it's like one of those choose-your-own-adventure books. And after a, after a story like that, doesn't your mind, even if you are that person who's like, I need to know what happens, your mind at least goes in several directions. And after a while of wrestling, you settle on something, don't you? Eventually, you have to settle. You have to fall on something. There's just something in the human heart that says, this story has to end this way. And so your imagination is so much more powerful. You know this, right? Because aren't the books always better than the movies? Yeah, they are. And so that's what's happening here. Now, uh, what's amazing about the Psalms is the Psalms then will take your mind in book four. Book four gets back to basics. It, It gets back to this is who God is. Learn these lessons over again. Notice... Um, The end of Psalm 89, the beginning of Psalm 90, where does it start? It begins at the Exodus. And who is praying the Psalm? A prayer of Moses, the man of God. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Right? It starts with who? The rescuer, Moses, who points to the rescuer, the great rescuer, Jesus. And so even though we know the end of this story, um, what the scriptures do for us is they inject in our imagination dreams beyond our imagination, pictures and images that point to this cosmic king who is making all things new and whose wisdom is inscrutable, unattainable, beyond our highest knowing or pleasure. That's what the Psalms do. The Psalms in here in book three and book four, they begin to unlock our hearts in obedience to God's word, and then they just take right off in book five and soar. And so, yes, we're down at the bottom of the pit today. But know that God is the rescuer. So let's look at Psalm 89 Psalm 89 focuses here on on the the promise uh, that God made to David. In 2 Samuel 7 and in in 1 Chronicles 17 that talk about the Davidic covenant, they don't actually mention the word covenant in particular. But as you look at over Psalm 89 in verse 3, in verse 28, verse 34, and verse 39, they describe for the first time God entering into a covenant with David. That's how the book, the Bible works. Right? So you are studying God's word and you're doing that on your own and that's great and we're, you're, looking at, um, you're looking at particular portions of scripture. Those portions make up books and those books make up the inspired story of God. It's all one story. It's all interconnected miraculously. Multiple authors over hundreds and thousands of years yet it forms this grand narrative. And so we see these things developing. The psalmist is looking back and saying, this is a covenant. Even when that it happened chronologically, no word was mentioned of covenant. Books one and two in in the Psalms are heavily Davidic. Um, This one, we see the king seems to disappear. Those Davidic Psalms and those references to the king because it is about God's faithless people and God's faithfulness. Psalm 2 sets the tone for book 3 in God's response to those who rebel. And at the close of book 2, Psalm 72 
Psalm 72, at the end of it, it prays for the realization of God's promise to this particular king. And so we see here at Psalm 89 that this is a response. It's a response. It responds to the gap, to the pit, to the darkness of where God's people are and his promise of this king who would come and lead the people of Israel, lead God's people. All of book three in the Psalms, all of book three deals with disparity, the disparity between God's promise and Israel's sin. But here what we see in this Psalm is Ethan, Ethan the Ezraite. He's a singer. That's how he's employed. He's a singer in the worship of God. He believes even in the darkness that God made this promise to David and he will fulfill. Oh, that's, that's powerful, right? Because in all things, what we need to believe is we need to believe that God rules and reigns over all and that God is making all things new. The problem in the world, the problem that we have, the problem with Christianity today is we don't believe that God is saving the world that he's active, and that we can trust him, and we can trust his promises. This is a powerful psalm because it doesn't get any lower than this. And you see Ethan, the singer, who's saying, I believe. Where is it, God? I'm trusting in you. He is a solid and wise friend. So here we see God's promise of steadfast love to David. Notice the psalm um, opens up. It says, a masculine of Ethan the Esserhite, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. That phrase, you'll know, you'll see it all through the Psalms. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Now, now notice too, and, and think about this, we've been talking about this um, in our church that God desires to work and we tend to think in the era of the rise of the modern self, that God works primarily with individuals. And we tend to think of ourselves as individuals and as, as this, this group of individuals that come and go and choose to be parts of groups and not parts of groups, radically independent. But God's plan is, is not framed in that way. Look what Ethan says. He says, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. And then notice down, he says, I will establish your offspring forever. I will build your throne for all generations. He's not talking about simply a few people from this generation and a few people from this generation and a few people from this generation. He's, he's talking about God's people that are generational. Like that's part of God's plan. It's one of the reasons we get it from Scripture that we put so much emphasis on parents' parenting reaching their children with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The liturgy of the church is important, but it's the liturgy of the church shapes the liturgy of the home, and it is fathers who are called to be the shepherds of their home. Why? Because here you have the singer, the worshiper, who's saying, he's modeling, I will sing of your steadfast love forever. For I said, this is God, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. God's saying this. 
So we ought to be singing it and repeating it over and over and over again. And the program of the church ought to be about building up shepherds to lead God's people. That's what Ethan is doing, and he's doing it here through song and through poetry. This is the promise of the steadfast love of God forever, and God's plan is to create a people of God an alternative society so that the world might see how Christians interact. That's God's plan. That's what God is doing. And then he says, um, he moves on, and he speaks then about God's sovereign redeeming power. It's not, just a, it's not enough to have this promise, right? You've got to have something to back it up, Right? You know, most of the time you want a down payment. Hey, I need, I need, there's a promise. I want, I, want, I want you to show me the money, right? Put something down. Well, here's the down payment. The down payment, which is sufficient for full payment, is God's sovereign redeeming power. He, he speaks of this in verses 5 through 16, a lengthy section. He says that God will make known his loving kindness and his faithfulness. That's what he is making known. He's making known his loving kindness. And he's doing this to what? To all generations. To all generations. He says, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of your holy ones. Notice that, that, is, that, that is, there's an exclamation point in your Bible. It's the heavens that are praising. And then he has two questions. The first question is, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who's got more power? Right? Who's got more power? No one. Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. Then Now he's putting God in the pantheon of gods and angelic creatures, heavenly creatures, and he's saying, pick one out that is more powerful. A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. Then notice his power. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are. O Lord, with your faithfulness around you, there's no one more mighty and, and then what he, he says, okay, here's how you know of the power of God. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crush Rahab like a carcass. You scatter your enemies with your mighty arm. Now, we talked about this particular verse back when we went through Psalm 74. And what's happening here? It's a reference back to... It's a reference back to Genesis 3.15 in the crushing of the serpent. And so when, when is the serpent crushed? Well, the serpent is visibly crushed in nature, in God's rule over nature. Who, who becomes the serpent early in the biblical story? Is it not Egypt? Egypt is the serpent. And what happens? Where, where is this raging sea? You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scatter your enemies with your mighty arm. 
Rahab is referenced in Scripture. This is Egypt. And where does God crush them? He crushes the sea monster in the sea. When he divides the Red Sea, through that trial, his people come unscathed. And the enemies of God are utterly crushed and destroyed. God's sovereign redeeming power. He says, the heavens are yours, the earth is ours. So he moves from the sea to the heavens to the earth and the world and all that is in it. You have founded them. And then notice um, that he moves from the north and the south. You have created them. Tabor and Heman joyously praise you. You have a, a mighty arm. In this, in this particular passage, um, he is standing... He's facing a particular direction. He's oriented towards the east, which is the orientation of worship. And he speaks about this north and the south. So he's oriented towards the east. And, and here the psalmist is, is making reference. It's, it's, it's a temple reference. It's a worship reference. Right? So the, the temple and tabernacle are rectangular shaped. And um, in the, the making of temple and tabernacle, um, there are particular angels that are situated in the temple and the ta tabernacle. You have the lion that faces east. Um, you have the, the calf. Um, uh, so these are the faces of these angelic beings that face west. You have the eagle that faces um, um, that faces north, and you have a man's face. I'm sorry, the, it's the eagle that faces south, and the man is facing north. And, and so they all correspond with particular items that are within this temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the bronze altar, the menorah, um, and the table. They all correspond with the offices of king and priest and prophet, and the man culminating in the, the king, priest, and prophet. And here he's referencing the, the conquering of David, north and south, you have created them. Tabor and, he, and Heman joyously praise your name. There's another reference um, further on to north and south and how God's power completely covers the earth. It completely, so even as David conquered the land, so God's sovereign redeeming power, his loving kindness, his faithfulness, it is absolutely incomparable. It is incomparable power. It is incomparable dominion. It is ultimate dominion over all. It is, and, and it re, it. It produces, look at verses 15 and 16, incomparable joy. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. Right? So, so this redeeming power, what does, it, what does it move towards? It moves towards worship. Blessed are the people who are doing what? Who know the festal shout. When was the shout of God? When did the shout go up? It was after the shofar was blown, and God's people in joyous praise, a shout would go out. Who do what? Who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. Who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. Who exalt in your name all the day and in your, in your righteousness 
They are exalted. So here we, we see that God's redeeming power produces what? It produces a joyous and redeemed people. People who are blessed because sinners can walk in, the fa- in light of the face of God. Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And we sometimes get caught up in there saying, what visiting of the iniquity on the third and fourth generation? Well, that's actually merciful that God visits the iniquity on the third and fourth generation. But what does he keep steadfast love for? Thousands of generations. In other words, his forgiveness and his mercy and his steadfast love causes people to exalt him. And yet he's still merciful. He is still merciful. This is a people that proclaim, they exalt in his name. Notice here that Blessed are the people who know worship. They, they know worship. In other words, this, the idea of knowing worship here is in the same way of knowing a person. Right? Knowing a person. Right? There, there is something, and I know that we have a, a snowy morning, and I know that there's people that are joining us. I'm glad that you're there in the warm comfort of your living room. But even as I stare at the back of the wall today, there's something missing. And I'm not saying that you needed to risk to come here. Please don't, you know, I'm not laying on guilt. I'm just making a point. I can't know you because you're not here. We can't know you because you're not here. Blessed are those who know worship. The idea is that we are face-to-face, that God is meeting face-to-face. Now, it's second best, certainly, to turn on your YouTube or Facebook and TV and participate, but there's something, know that there's something missing when you're not face-to-face. He says here, blessed are those who what? Know worship. It's a personal thing. It's an experience Um, It's something to be experienced that God has blessed. Who do what? Who walk in light of your face, right? It's it's talking about the the parts of worship and how how we operate in worship, that walk. There's obedience in light of what? In light of who you are, who do what? Who give praise, who worship, who exalt in your name. It's the name of God. And they do this when? All the day, all the day. And then it says, in righteousness, what happens to those that learn how and participate in worship in this way? What happens even, so you can grab, I believe you can grab onto this as worshipers as a promise. That when you know God in worship, when you turn your hearts and your feet and your hands and your mind and all of you to walk in the light of the face of God, when you exalt him all the day, that's Sunday through Saturday, then in righteousness, you will be exalted. God exalts you. So we see, we see here 
that God is, that God promises his steadfast love because of his covenant to David. We see his sovereign redeeming power. We see that this covenant is a worldwide covenant of dominion. Um, But then we also see that there is a lament, a lament that comes here towards the end um, of this section. It's a lament for disobedience. It's a lament for disobedience. Notice how he prays. In verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You've breached all the walls and you've laid his strongholds into ruins and all who pass by by plunder him and he has become the scorn of his neighbors and you have exalted the right hand of his foes and you have made his enemies to rejoice. And it goes on through verse 48. Um, Notice in verse 47 it says, uh, Remember how short my time is. For what vanity... Have you created all the children of man? What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of hell? Do you see the longing? He's looking around him and he recognizes that God's people, God's people have left the promise of God. And God has As Psalm 2 says, God has scoffed and has brushed them off, has has let them go, and they find themselves what? They find themselves in exile, apart from the mercy and grace of God. He does this so well as he paints this picture. But there is a longing, a longing of the psalmist's heart. I think we all can sing the same song where he says, how long, O God, will you hide yourself? Will you hide yourself forever? You know, we only have one life. That's what he's saying. God, will you show yourself? Isn't there that longing? Maybe it's it's not something that's there every day, but... There are those times where you go to God and you say, God, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And what the psalmist does is he, he's going to God and he's going in lament. He's trusting in God and he's recognizing his sinfulness and the sinfulness of the people of God. And he's recognizing the only thing that can change his circumstance is God himself. The longing, when you look at this, and you you look at verses 47 and 48, I hope it strikes you that he's not simply longing for a heavenly state, but he's longing for a heaven on earth. He's longing for God to show up in power and fulfill his promise. 
This is not an individual that's simply saying, well, the world and life is just kind of going to hell. Thank God I'm a Christian. You know, I might as well kind of live for whatever I can get, and when I check out, I check out, and I'll be with him in glory. I think that's far too often the attitude of most evangelical Christians. Because then the lifestyle becomes a lifestyle no different than those who do not know God. They're just hoping for their heavenly home. No, this man is so heavenly minded that he wants to see what God has promised, which is heaven on earth, heaven meeting earth. We say it when we recite the verse we know so well. For God so loved the world. Which means, for God so loved the world and everything in it. And at its pinnacle is humanity. Jesus Christ died so you would be transformed. The psalmist is saying here that you would be transformed and that God's people would be transformed in that our communities, our families, our way of living, our nation, the nations of the world would be transformed. So when we pray, oh, Lord, come quickly, we're not escaping. We ought not to pray the prayer of escape. We ought not to blow off what's happening in the world, but rather we ought to want to see this world changed. And so he says, remember how short my time is. Oh, Lord, that you would in our lifetime bring radical transformation by the power of the gospel to this place and all the earth. It's at the bottom of the pit, but his words soar. Finally, he asks the question after his lament, where is your steadfast love? It doesn't end with rainbows and roses, but it does end with blessed hope. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mocked, O Lord, with which they mocked the footsteps of your anointed. Where? Where? And that's where we end. And that's what we must think about. And that's what we must pray for. Oh, God, where? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we continue to worship you, I pray that you will not do something simply in our minds, but first in our hearts. You will give us a longing for the Savior and a longing for heaven. Heaven in our presence, transformed by the present power of the gospel. And that we will trust just like Ethan who trusted in your Holy One 
who made promises to David, who were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who we know that we have forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future, that our home is secure, that victory is won. Oh, that that would be a lived and present reality through our obedience today. In this place and in our homes, for the glory of God in the world, amen.